Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting, or both, about being football fans. So, this is a rather different episode of Fans, given it's not focused on supporting a specific club, but rather on the experience of being a football supporter in general, which is something I've wanted to do for a while, and specifically in regards to being a match-going fan and the issues and difficulties around that. And I'm joined by the ideal guest to speak about those things, Football Supporters Association caseworker, a woman who can't wait to go to the hairdressers, it's Amanda Jacks. Amanda, how are you? I'm very well, Sachin. Thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And thank you for um, correcting me just before we start recording because, um, and I did stumble over there slightly, and that's why. It is, of course, the Football Supporters Association, not Football Supporters Federation. As you explained, um, the name changed, what, a couple of years ago, and to my immense discredit I, I didn't know that um do you know so it was known as football sport we're going to talk about this more in general as we go on but um yeah it was known as the football sports federation quite a while but the name changed what, a couple of years ago is that right that's right yeah we merged with supporters direct which meant a name change so after lots of soul searching head scratching debate discussion we, we decided to move from a federation to an association Excellent stuff. Well, thanks for correcting me just before we started, because uh, in my research, I'd seen the name change, but I thought I was reading it wrong or something, because I've known it for so long as the Football Sports Federation. Um, And as I said, yeah, really glad to come. I'm really glad you've come on to to speak about what I, as I said, what I said in intro, the the issues around being a match going fan, um, difficulties around that, something very close to my heart as someone who watches football as a as a punter, as a spectator, more than they do as a journalist these days, actually. And I've and I've encountered some issues in that regard. So really keen to speak to you about that because that's fundamentally what you do with the Football Supports Association. So delighted to get you on. Um to talk about that. But uh, yeah, before we do, uh, I mentioned it there also in the introduction. Um, you're very excited about going to the hairdressers today. Um, we've actually recording slightly earlier to make sure you don't miss your appointment. Um, we are in that week where everyone's getting their hair cut because barbers and the hairdressers are all open. Um, yeah, I don't really know what to say about that. We just, I just know from our chat on the phone a couple of days ago, uh, you're, you're very excited about all of this, aren't you? I am. I didn't even need my alarm to wake me up this morning at six o'clock, bounced out of bed. Yeah, haircut day. So I've already taken the before pictures and looking forward to the after pictures when I've um, had a good few inches taken off. Excellent. Yeah, we are in that week. So um, it's that week in, in the UK anyway, April the 12th, uh, the week starting April the 12th, where the uh, hairdressers and barbers and shops and various other, and beer gardens all opened in the UK. And so, yeah, across social media, people have been posting images of themselves slowly, but surely getting back to uh, back to normality. And yeah, the most prevalent one I would say is beer garden pictures and hairdresser related pictures. So um, yeah. Well, uh, the, the fact I'm prioritizing my hair again, sitting in a beer garden, I think <laughs> spells out how old and boring I've become. <laughs> Well, join the club because um, I'm getting my hair cut on Thursday and I was always going to do that before I had a pint because I'm in a slightly weird situation. You might probably see we're talking on Zoom. We can see each other on Zoom and you probably see my hair's going. Actually, my, my hairline's been receding quite drastically in the last couple of years. And people might not realise this, you lucky people with lots of hair. But actually, it's worse when you've got thinning hair when you can't go to the barbers and when you've got lots of hair, well, it is in my case anyway, because my hair is growing as it always has done on the side, but thinning on the top. So if you can't get it cut, you get that horrible thing after a few weeks of what I call the semicircle of humiliation, where it's all thick on the sides, but horribly thin on the top. So I can't wait to go to the barbers. It's actually tomorrow I'm going and getting it all shaved off and nice and even and kind of a 
crew cut. Well, there, 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 there's, there's always the comb over, isn't there? For oh. <laughs> oh, I'm never doing that. I'll never, I'll never resort to a comb over yet. Now I, these days, I just shave it all off as soon as I can. So I've been missing the barbers a lot because I've got that horrible imbalanced hair thing going at the moment, as I call it, the semicircle of humiliation. Anyway, let's start talking about hair and let's talk. Let's talk about far more important things, which is, as I said, your role um, at the FSA. And yeah, the, the fantastic work you've done for a very long time now, helping football supporters with, with um, as I said, issues and difficulties they've had specifically around being match going supporters. Um, so we'll get into your specific role shortly. But do you, do you just want to first explain to people who don't know what the FSA is, as I previously known, the FSF? Um, the position it holds within uh, the game in, 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 the, in the United Kingdom um, and the sort of important role it holds, as I said, for, for football supporters of all types. Sure. The um, Football Supporters Association is a campaigning organisation. And in, in a nutshell, we campaign for everything off pitch that might affect match going fans. Um, also included in with that, um, particularly since our merger with Supporters Direct, we look at governance, club owned fan, um, sorry, supporter owned clubs, because that was the absolute ideal of Supporters Direct to get more supporters involved in club ownership. Whereas the Football Supporters Federation, as was, didn't really um, concentrate on those areas. But as I said, since the merger, we're an all-encompassing organisation looking at everything from my pie gave me food poisoning to I want to help by my football club. Yeah, very, a huge, all-encompassing organisation. Um, and Malcolm Clark is the chairman. Kevin Miles is the chief executive. Um, there's a national council made up of elected individuals and in total 500,000 members uh, make up the FSA f- and their fans, affiliated, uh, people from affiliated supporters of organisations from every club in the professional game and footballing pyramid. Uh, so a huge organisation. And it's also got the ear of government as well, because it's uh, uh, the FSA is a secretariat of, to the all party parliamentary football supporters group. And I'd have to say one recent standout achievement, which, again, as someone who, who travels uh, home and away to watch uh, to watch my team Liverpool play, it was the 20s Plenty campaign where the F, well, I think it was probably then still known as the FSF, uh, argued for a £20 cap on the price of tickets for away fans at all levels. There was a lot of lobbying and eventually led to the Premier League announcing a £30 cap for all away tickets, which I think is a great, uh, a great measure, great steps, had a huge impact. Curious, what's it been like being part of the FSA during the past year? Um, during the pandemic with the fact there's been no match going fans has that led to a real drop off of issues for you guys to to deal with I've been less busy uh, which has been frustrating but my colleagues haven't been you know that there's still been an awful lot of work to be done you know particularly around the food banks and so on Mm. so whilst we've not had any direct involvement as such we've coordinated and helped with that done lots of publicity around it Um, governance matters still go on Um, I I mean I've had some work to do like the fallout from the games up until they stopped and then they started again so there was a few issues arising from those but yeah we, we've um my colleagues have been as busy as usual particularly Anwar who does a diversity fans for diversity campaign which is an, a, a brilliant you know I can't sing his praises highly enough not wishing to single out one colleague over mm. another but his work has been high profile throughout the past year or so and I suppose like every single person listening we just can't wait to get back to normality whatever that will look like um come august no 
yeah, totally echo that. I actually renewed my Liverpool season ticket uh, a week ago, actually. Um, and it was genuinely an emotional moment because we weren't, al- weren't able to do it last season because obviously the, the club rightly decided not to, not to have the season ticket renewal process because there was going to be no fans for the season that we're currently in. But I've renewed for next season and whether we're actually in from the start of the season or not, I don't know. But no, it was a, a hugely, genuinely hugely emotional moment to renew and hopefully, fingers crossed, yeah, myself and all match going fans will be back in grounds um, sooner rather than later into the new season, the 2021-2022 season. I'm actually curious. So you said you obviously you've been dealing with some issues, given there has been some fans going back into grounds during the past year. We had that little spell, didn't we, in sort of December where 2,000 fans were allowed back at, at grounds across the country. Did so? Did that little period where we had some fans going back to back to matches did that raise any specific unique issues that obviously you wouldn't deal with in normal times nothing major there was a handful of cases and literally a handful um where fans had gone to the vicinity of their stadiums um they were moved on then their clubs found out that about it so they were banned from breaking the rules and being in attendance, a few minor issues of behaviour that necessitated stewards getting involved and again, club bans pending. But thankfully, no no arrests or no major incidents to speak of in that very short period of time. Excellent. Okay. well, let's talk about your specific role then at the uh, FSA. So is it accurate to say it's centred on the policing and stewarding of supporters in England and Wales and tackling the unfair criminalisation of those same people? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's such a, I mean, for for starters, it's a niche job that Mm. I've kind of carved out for myself with the backing, obviously, of the FSA. So it's quite nice to do a job that nobody else does. It's always a good talking point. But I I wear loads of hats because there's so many sort of spin-offs from the job. So when I very first started, it was concentrating primarily on policing and stewarding, but that's evolved over the years to so many other things. For example, talking to the police about alternatives to the criminal justice system for supporters, talking about um, tackling behaviour of supporters, particularly younger fans, you know, let's steer them away from the criminal justice system and be a bit more imaginative with how they're dealt with, Um, encouraging clubs to have due process for supporters that they might need to exclude. So it's, it's not an exaggeration to say that every week, you know, a different issue will come up and like there's always a lot of things on the go, which bring some really good variety to my role. And is it right to say you started that role in uh, January 2011? So a little over a decade you've you've been doing this thing now. This, this yeah, job. that was full time because my yeah. route into the FSA was um, I, I I need to rewind a bit um, to to explain how I got into doing this job. West Ham supporter many years ago, a West Ham fan called Peter Caton started a campaign called Stand Up, Sit Down, which was about um, allowing supporters to stand in front of their seats in matches in certain Mm. areas of the ground. So he was handing out flyers outside the Berlin ground. I took one and said, oh, this looks interesting. Do you want some help? So he said, yes, please, would love some. So I got heavily involved with that then we started to talk more and more to the FSF as it was then long story short I was then encouraged to stand as a national council member for the FSF which I did got voted on and then 
sort of while still being very interested in safe standing, started to take more and more notice of policing and stewarding. So so when, when there was incidents at games where the stewarding was particularly heavy handed heavy handed or the policing outside was draconian, fans started to come forward to talk to me about their experiences. So from then it really, really snowballed. So I started mm. to pick up casework. Supporters used to come to me to say, I've been arrested, I've been banned, how can you help? The, the legal side is quite, in, well, very interesting. Um, a supporter came to me saying that he'd been a victim of an arrest at a Premier League game, but his arrest was as, as a result of mistaken identity. Could I help? Because his club had found out that he'd been arrested and subsequently banned him. So I then spoke to the solicitor who represented him at the police station just to, not that I didn't believe him, but it's always helpful to have people's stories verified. Um, so he put me in touch with the solicitor that represented him at the police station, a lady called Melanie Cook. Um, her and I immediately got on like a house on fire. I explained to her what I was doing. So she said, well, look, anytime you need a fan who needs any legal advice, by all means, send them my way because I'm not mm. a solicitor. I'm not legally qualified. So I started doing that. And again, you know, word got out. People started talking about it on social media. So I was able to send a steady flow of people to Melanie, which again, you know, the more supporters I sent to her, the more I learned about the legislation, how it impacted on supporters. And just as an aside, um, Melanie's now got her own business called Football Law Associates. So she's one of the, if not the most specialist lawyer in the country when it comes to football related matters. So on the legal side, I kind of act as a triage. I'm yeah. the first port of call. Mm. So obviously not in the past year or so, but prior to lockdown, my Monday mornings, Tuesday mornings were really busy with supporters phoning me up saying, I've been arrested, help, I'm going to go to prison. Mm. Um, so it was, it's actually, I mean, the word privilege is overused, I think, but it is, I do actually genuinely find it a privilege to be that person that people can turn to. And I am able to, in some cases, reassure them that no, actually they're not going to go to prison. And just to hear the relief in their voices is really quite nice um you know and also to to know that i'm trusted as well to be people can feel that they can share certain information with me is um an honor really so sorry jumping all over the place as i tend to do no, it's fine, um, but, but just going back so by then i was still a national council council member with yeah. the ff and then something really big happened um got a email from a Stoke City supporter and he had a really, really, really torrid tale to tell um, with his fellow fans. Uh, they'd got coaches to Man United away. The game, they'd stopped at a pub in Earlham, which is a suburb of Greater Manchester. Um, so there's about 100 Stoke fans, men, women, children, a real mixed bunch in this pub. The pub landlord had laid on sandwiches for them. Great time has been had by all, no hint of trouble whatsoever. And all of a sudden, GMP arrived, surrounded the pub, went in. And Should say, that's Greater Manchester Police, isn't it? Yes, Greater Manchester Police. Yeah went in and announced to the Stoke City supporters um, that they weren't actually going to the match. They were being dispersed under legislation called Section 27 um, and they were being processed, which meant their names and addresses had all been taken, put on the coaches and sent back to Stoke. 
which is, you know, because, you know, the fans were completely and utterly bewildered by this. As I said, you know, that they were just ordinary supporters going to the match. No hint of aggro, no hint of anything other than a good day out. So it, it took a good couple of hours to process all these supporters. So obviously the first people that were processed were sitting on a coach for a good two or three hours before the coach was allowed to leave. They weren't allowed off the coach to use the toilets so they had to urinate in bottles or glasses you know whatever they had on the coaches then once the mp had processed all these supporters they then escorted the coaches back to stoke and because the coaches were surrounded by police vehicles they couldn't stop so this one supporter was rightly aggrieved by his treatment wrote a letter of complaint to Greater Manchester Police who replied effectively it was a, it was literally a two or three sentence letter that said you've got no grounds for complaint but thanks for getting in touch so he then came to me and I immediately thought this just cannot be right that yeah. the police the powers to deal with around about 100 people in this way so in turn I got in touch with Liberty the civil rights organization who thankfully agreed with me that the police had completely exceeded their powers and I should hasten to add at that time section 27 the dispersal powers were relatively new it was the first time they'd been used en masse in this way so Liberty agreed to take the case on Stoke City Football Club agreed to underwrite the costs because Liberty acted for free. But in the event that the case against GMP was lost, they would have to pay GMP's costs. So Stoke City brilliantly for them, like I said, agreed to underwrite the costs. And um, GMP eventually capitulated and held their hands up and said, we got it completely wrong and paid out compensation to each of the hundred odd supporters that were on the coach. That's absolutely remarkable, that tale. Uh, uh, So, I mean, what did they give any justification on the day for why they were dispersing them? I mean, these people are just in a pub having a drink. Why why did GMP go in there in in the first place? They suspected there would be trouble. Well, this really does touch on the fundamental issue for me uh, talking to you today for this for this episode. It, it is for me the absolutely shocking and outrageous way football supporters are treated in this country. Not all the time, and not, you know, I, I haven't had any. You know, I've been watching football now for way over twenty years as a, as a match goer, and I haven't had any huge issues. I've had a few, which I'll come on to later. But there's without a doubt there is a fundamental problem I think in this country, and I'm sure you'll agree that football supporters are treated differently, not just to supporters and spectators involved in other sports, but people in general. And there are, I said, there's a range of incidents highlighting this. You've, you've, just mentioned one there that the issue with the Stoke fans I've got a few others which I'll come on to but as a starting point I just want to talk about the laws that affect football supporters specifically and football supporters alone am I right in saying there are there are 11 um, very specific ones among them indecent uh, think issues around indecent or offensive chanting missile throwing possession of alcohol uh, ticket resale donation and the breaching football banning orders do you just want to talk about those um, and maybe just if you want to talk about generally about the laws that are very specific to football fans that really do just simply do not apply to other people, as I said, either other spectators in other sports or, or society, people in society in general. As, as you say, there are absolutely laws that affect football supporters that don't affect anybody else. And we've got the Football Offences Act, where a lot of these offences arise from. Now, obviously, in this country, we did go through a very torrid time in the 70s and 80s with football hooliganism. But there was... 
and, and not wishing to detract in any way, shape or form from the disorder that we all know about. But I think around that was called a moral panic. Yeah. So, you know, mm. We had Thatcher and the English disease and the front page of all the newspapers. So football supporters were absolutely at the bottom of the social pile. Mm. So inevitably something had to be done. And that something was this rash of legislation that was put through Parliament, I think it's fair to say with very little opposition. So there there were no civil liberties organisations saying, hang on a minute, let's look at this legislation. Because, you know, because as I said, you know, the, the football supporters attracted all the headlines for all the wrong, well, not the wrong reasons, because as I said, you can't distract from the fact there was absolutely violence and very bad violence. But they, on the back of that moral panic, government was able to pass some legislation, which was really draconian. And that legislation exists to this day. And I think it is fair to say that a lot of that now is probably not applied in the spirit that was it intended at the time. So, for example, in the Football Offences Act, you've got two offences, which which to this day I still see a lot of supporters arrested for. And they are the throwing of missiles and the going onto the playing area. So when it comes to missiles, I'm pretty certain the intention was to criminalise people, and absolutely rightly so, for throwing objects such as coins and cigarette lighters that can cause serious harm. So I don't think anybody would object to an individual being arrested for throwing a coin or a lighter. But when that legislation is now used to arrest and charge people for throwing fancy dress trousers, for throwing sweets, for throwing empty coffee cups, for throwing empty water bottles to the ground in frustration, I like to think that the legislators did not anticipate their legislation being used in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And and to and to bring up one frankly absurd incident in, in regards to how football supporters are getting uh, treated very differently and ridiculously under the current laws. Um do you want to talk about Kenneth Leach? Do you remember who Kenneth Leach is and was and why he ended up in court? He was the inflatable Oh, inflatable fish man, wasn't inflatable he? Inflatable shark man, yeah. Inflatable so, shark. yeah. So, I'll just give the background to this. There's a man called Kenneth Leach. He's a 51 year old Grimsby Town fan, and I think this was in 2016. Correct me if I'm wrong. He was found guilty of common assault at a Barnet versus Grimsby match, and his crime was accidentally hitting a steward on the head with an inflatable shark while celebrating a late goal. He was given a 12 month consto- uh, conditional discharge, ordered to pay the steward £100 in compensation. He was also ordered to pay £700 in court costs and a victim surcharge of £70. Uh, Amusingly, as he left court, Ken told journalists that he felt a bit deflated, which is a a nice line. But I mean, that's one of the that's one of the examples, isn't it, that shows you, as you said, these laws were set up in on the back of the, as you rightly said, the terrible hooliganism of the 70s and 80s, the violence that we saw football grounds um, consistently and regularly during those two decades but it's now leading to some absurdly draconian actions being taken by uh, police and stewards aren't they and this and this incident with kenneth leach and the inflatable shark that just highlights that perfectly doesn't it it does indeed yeah i mean that there to be fair there there was a bit of a melee as there quite often is after a goal celebration and the poor steward was caught in the middle of it and 
yeah, got whacked on the head, but there was absolutely no indication that this was done deliberately or, I mean, how much harm can you cause <laughs> an inflatable bloody blow up shark? Exactly. But, but yeah, you, you, you are absolutely right. That, that, I mean, that is one example. Another one that I briefly touched on um, was the charge of, uh, against a supporter for throwing a pair of fancy dress trousers. He, when did that got, happen? Yeah, do you remember? That was a Leeds United supporter and it was at QPR and him and his friends had gone. I think it was a, a protest against the owners at the time um, who, I, if memory serves me right, were Italian. So they'd gone to the game dressed as sort of mafia in bad fancy dress suits. You know, so cheap and flimsy that they wore them over the top of their jeans and T-shirts. <laughs> yeah. um, what One of them ripped off the trousers at some point in the game and threw them down to the lower tier and was subsequently charged with missile throwing. Thankfully, that supporter came to me with good legal representation. Those charges were dropped. Now, you, you could say, well, it's only a handful of cases. What's the problem? But the problem is, A, it puts people who have no knowledge or no experience of the criminal justice system through it which is a deeply unpleasant experience. But I think more importantly, you know, where is the public interest in all of this? And at a time when, you know, that the whole criminal justice system, including the police and the courts and the lawyers are on their knees because of the cuts, you know, is it really money well spent? And I think the answer to that has to be no. And it's, you know, exactly the same applies to the people that throw the water bottle down in frustration or throw a coffee cup towards the pitch. You know, if you walk down the high street and threw a bottle on the floor, you're not going to get arrested for it. If you're at a concert and you throw your bottle in the air, you're not going to get arrested for it. But you are at a football match and... There just needs to be a lot more common sense and discretion. And there is a especially serious issue around that as well. All the things you said are absolutely correct. But the other, as I said, especially serious, long-standing problem and the potentially devastating impact of all of this is that it lands people with criminal records, doesn't it? And that can impact their lives for years. You know, it can stop them getting jobs and potentially getting mortgages on homes. I mean, it, it's a, it has a devastating impact, doesn't it? What, what can be a relatively frivolous incident can lead to as i said long-standing and potentially devastating impacts for people absolutely definitely and another part of the football offenses act as well um the going on the pitch mm. now we all know why that was brought in because of mass pitch invasions you know away fans going to threaten home fans vice versa but again you know there are degrees of that and i think the person who runs onto the pitch with malicious intent absolutely needs to be put before the courts but the person that spills onto the pitch because their team have just scored a winning goal or because it's a moment of high excitement or because they lose their heads um you know and, and momentum whatever just gets the better of them should those people be treated in the same way as the people that have gone on as i said with malicious intent no they shouldn't that isn't to say there shouldn't be consequences but clubs can ban people from their premises. So rather than put those individuals through the criminal justice system, why not just issue them with 
club bands and something else that we've not touched on either and sorry if I'm preempting the question that you might have ready to ask me is football banning orders can be given to these individuals as well you know particularly those that don't go to court with a solicitor to argue their case for them now the original um sorry to get a football banning order first of all you have to be convicted of a football related offence And the list of football-related offences in itself is problematic, given that football banning orders are primarily there to deal with violence and disorder. So you have to ask yourself, why, for example, is drink driving on the list of football-related offences? You know, what's that got to do with violence or disorder? The fact that, to the best of my knowledge, nobody has ever got a football banning order for drink driving to or from a match is irrelevant. The fact that it's even on the list is indicative of just how broad or or just how widely the net can be cast to give football supporters banning orders on conviction. So if if you're convicted of a football-related offence, the court then has to be satisfied that granting a football banning order application will prevent future football-related violence or disorder. Now, in some cases, it absolutely will. You know, if, if you've been if, if you've been known to the police for many years because of your involvement in violence or disorder or, or being on the periphery of it, and you've been convicted of a fray or violent disorder, it's very hard to argue that you shouldn't get a football banning order. However, if you're not known to the police, and going back to my real life examples of the empty coffee cup or going on the pitch for eight seconds because you're celebrating a goal, is granting a football banning order really, in those circumstances, really going to prevent violence or disorder in the future? And again, the answer to that has to be no. So why then are we still seeing applications on conviction for these sort of offences? And again, it goes back to well, because it's football and because there's perhaps not the scrutiny around how the criminal justice system works with football fans as there is in other areas. Yeah, I I read a quote from you in an interview you did relatively recently and I think you nailed it. You said there's essentially a parallel criminal justice system for football fans. It's like a different system entirely for, for football spectators and matchgoers. It is. And, you know, that is fundamentally wrong. Um, You know, why is that? And again, it goes back to, I think, what I said earlier, um, football supporters really are at the bottom of the social pile because there's very little broader media scrutiny about it because, Mm. you know, whilst there are some really good journalists out there who absolutely take an interest in this sort of thing, I think, broadly speaking, the media... Um, prefer to run with the all football fans are hooligans narrative because they take the police press releases around these issues at verbatim. They don't investigate why, you know, we've got the Euros coming up and I guarantee even with the COVID restrictions around travelling, we will still see headlines that will say, a thousand yobs prevented from traveling to the euros because they've got to hand in their passports but you know where's the surely the media have some responsibility to properly interrogate the police press releases rather than just publish them without question so if there was an interrogation they would ascertain very quickly that a large number of people who have got football banning orders very likely don't deserve them 
aren't yobs and have been convicted of offences that have got absolutely nothing to do with violence or disorder. To steal another line that you gave in an interview about this, which I thought nailed it uh, fantastically, is you said there's, a, there's an expect and accept mentality among football fans themselves, where a lot of them get treated awfully when they go to football and they just, well, they expect it going there and they accept it once they're there. And so I guess as fans ourselves as well I mean you you get obviously lots of complaints to to you but probably not as many as you could in a way because so many fans just go well I know when I go to football I'm going to get treated terribly and yeah so all of us all of us match goers we need to speak out a bit more about it as well I mean I'm not saying all the responsibility should be on football fans but I think that's really interesting that line expect and um, accept mentality that there's there's an issue with that as well a few more incidents to show you just how you know ridiculous and unacceptable football fans and matchgoers specifically are treated and sort of touches on another issue. So we're talking about people getting back, as you rightly say, getting banning orders, getting put through the criminal justice system unnecessarily. But it's also just the way they're treated at games, which is just completely unacceptable. So I think the most high profile case in recent years, and you wrote a piece about this for The Guardian, an excellent piece about this in 2017 after it happened, was the female Grimsby Town fans having their their bras checked out of a game at Stevenage. Uh, I mean, just absolutely astonishing this even happened. Do you, again, do you just want to talk about this? It was incredible. It is incredible, but it's also important to say that, uh, you know, there are a lot of really good police officers out there who are progressive, very happy to work with us. And the landscape has changed dramatically. Mm. Um, And a lot of police forces have now moved away from treating a football match as an exercise in public order to treating a football match how it should be treated, which is ultimately a community event. Um, But but that notwithstanding, yes, we still do see problems. Um, Mm. And the Grimsby Town fans as well getting there. I I think, what was it? It was their bras were being sort of tested to see whether they were underwired. Yeah. I don't know if the suggestion was that women would scurry off to the moon, take out their underwire and use their wire as some sort of weapon or not. Um, Can be the only explanation, I think. Absolutely ridiculous. We're well known for that, aren't we? (laughs) Using the wiring in our bras as lethal weapons. Um, But I I think, you know, whilst thankfully that was isolated, I think that, 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 that that could happen is indicative of an industry that doesn't always see football supporters as paying customers. And again, you know, this is a line that I've used on quite a few podcasts and in interviews. I've been fortunate enough to be invited to various clubs as their guest and had the red carpet treatment, you know, the five-star treatment, absolutely brilliant. I've been to those same clubs as away fans and it's totally different. Yeah. You know, and again, this is a line I use a lot. We don't want a red carpet. We don't want to be called sir or madam. But it just would be so nice if if the mindset in football wasn't to treat us as potential public order problems, but paying customers, you know, people that have travelled a long way to support their club, people that have paid a lot of money to do it, people that have taken a day off work, people that have gone without to afford those match tickets. And particularly away fans, you know, I've stood and watched away fans at so many different clubs when I've been out doing observations and they are just treated so badly. And aside from the fact that, you you know, again, this, this I should acknowledge that there are some clubs out there who get it right. Brighton is one example. 
you know, they do get it right. They put up signs saying, you know, welcome to Liverpool fans who have travelled 600 miles and they, the staff on the concourses are dressed in Liverpool shirts. They'll serve you beer from Liverpool or whatever. And that's absolutely how it should be. But sad that we are talking about clubs that do make that effort to recognise football supporters as what they are, as the exception rather than Mm. the norm. And and even worse, when things do go wrong, you know, quite a few clubs, it will happen that bottlenecks are caused, for example. Stewards have no idea how to manage those situations, Mm. even now. And when you write to those clubs to say, look, this happened, supporters were 20 minutes late getting into the ground, they were penned in, they were treated really poorly by the stewarding, there was no organisation, there was the blame is put on back on the supporters. To me, the fact that clubs still feel able to do that is just appalling. Absolutely. I mean, I echo all of that, I was nodding away as you were speaking, because, yeah, I... I go to a fair few away games. It's the thing I enjoy most. I actually enjoy watching Liverpool away as much, if not more, than watching them at home. I absolutely love going. And I think that's a feeling a lot of fans get. They love watching their team away. There's that sense of kind of going into enemy territory. Probably shouldn't be using that language when we're talking about not treating football fans as kind of, you know, people who create social disturbance and, and, and people that need to be dealt with by police officers. But it, it, I don't mean that in a violent way. I just mean that in a, in a very sort of football way that you're going into the, you know, the, the territory of your rival team and you know you're going to sing yeah. your hearts out and try and support your team and try and earn a really fantastic victory as i said on, on enemy territory but yeah as soon as you go there as an away fan you can get treated very badly i've had specific issues abroad and i was, I was going to ask you about this i mean i went to to give you a couple examples i i went to belgrade in 2018 to watch liverpool play red star belgrade and had an absolutely ludicrous incident as we were waiting to get into the ground i mean we had these unbelievably sort of personal searches by the stewards i mean they were getting very physical and very close to certain body parts i didn't want you know i'll never want a steward to touch and having sort of body checked us um, up and down a few times i had a steward and asked me uh, to empty all my pockets and he took my wallet off me pulled out a picture a little passport picture of my daughter from when she was like two years old and started examining it and I said what are you doing and he said I'm checking this isn't a weapon I was like it's a passport picture of a two-year-old girl and what and then there was an incident I went to see Liverpool play Paris Saint-Germain in the same season and we had five security checks before we got into the ground and as you can imagine everyone's getting so agitated you know five times you're getting body searched five times you're being asked to have your pockets emptied and I think the reason I'm sort of giving these uh, examples is is to kind of back up what you're saying and make the point that it's so counterproductive to do this, isn't it? Because what it does is it creates the aggravation and tension among supporters that the policing is meant to stop and control. So it's completely counterproductive. If stewards and police treated football sports like adults, 98% of them, 98% of us, we'd act like adults, wouldn't we? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And obviously, I think compared to how English fans are treated in Europe to here, it's a picnic here uh, i actually went to seville where liverpool fans had a really torrid experience yeah, about three years ago wasn't it 2017 i think it was really yeah yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it was just awful some of the stories that came out of that were mm. hair raising um so i went a few months later with man united 
And it's fair to say that Man United's experience was completely different to your experience. And I think the fact that Liverpool fans, Spirit of Shankly, Liverpool Football Club, were very, very vociferous about their treatment meant that the spotlight was more on Seville when Man Mm. United went there. And English clubs now are much, much better at backing their fans when they've had poor treatment abroad and are far more prepared to speak up on their behalf, which is absolutely brilliant to see. And I think the media here are as much better at reporting how English fans are treated abroad compared to 10, 15 years ago. But it, it just seems that, you know, despite all the coverage, despite all the headlines, despite all the lurid pictures and the injuries that are sustained at the hands of European police and stewards, it still happens. And the irony is, at the start of lockdown, I did an online course with the Council of Europe that covered how, in theory, supporters are supposed to be treated in Europe. And you, I, I couldn't have written it better myself, you know, the, um, the guidelines. But I was laughing all the way through it because I thought all these guidelines are here about how supporters should be treated in Europe and yet nobody's putting them into practice. I was going to ask you about that. So is there dialogue between the FSA and um, I don't know whether it would be clubs in Europe or police in, in European countries about the treatment of English fans? Because as you say, absolutely spot on. And you hear this anecdotally all the time. English fans are treated so badly abroad, aren't they? I remember Man United playing in Rome in 2008, I think, the year they won the European Cup. I mean, the scenes from there were absolutely scandalous. They were literally getting beaten by the police while they were in the away end at the at the Olympic Stadium in Rome. Um, so is, is it, I mean, it sounds like there is, but is there then that dialogue with authorities in Europe? There, there is, and there's an organisation called Football Supporters Europe that do mm. some really, really good work in this regard. And the fact, as I said, that um, English clubs now are getting far more vociferous on behalf of their supporters. And, you know, and, and the English police as well will travel mm. and they will do their best with their European counterparts to say, look, you know, or in the main the travelling fans will behave. If you treat them well, you'll get good behaviour from it. But of course, exactly. the police have got no jurisdiction out there. Um, I mean, I, I've, um, I went to Basel for your UEFA Cup final in 2016. Yeah, 2016, yeah. Um, that was absolutely brilliant. You know, the mm. authorities out in Switzerland put on an amazing party for you. It was brilliant. I was in the town square. The police were hands off. And again, I was fortunate enough to go to Madrid for the Champions League final mm. against Spurs. And again, you know, during the day, if you were there, yeah. I'm sure you agree that there was brilliant atmosphere. The policing was laid back, hands off. And I was actually embedded together with Football Supporters Europe with the Spanish police. And they really, really genuinely wanted good headlines. That, that they, they bent over backwards to facilitate yeah. your fans and Spurs fans mm. during the day to have a really good time. And I, I didn't see any trouble. It was a brilliant atmosphere. And I think you'd agree, you know, the daytime was amazing. Yeah. Something else I want to talk to you about, something that's very close to my heart, um, not as close to my heart as having a haircut, but it's still close to my heart, and that is uh, drinking of football, which I think is, um, re- again, linked to all of this and, and an interesting issue. So you may not remember this, Amanda, but I interviewed you around this topic uh, for an article I did for the Football 365 website in 2018 about being an away fan, but then it, it then really sort of 
uh, honed in on on issues around alcohol consumption at football. And there are quite strict rules in terms of drinking at, at football. You've you touched on it already. And f- uh, from what I can tell and from my reading, there are four pillars to this, which are that it's illegal to take alcohol inside the ground. It's illegal to be drunk inside the ground. It's illegal to drink in view of the pitch. And it's illegal to drink on a supporters coach to and from a ground. Uh, so that's what we discussed for the article for Football 365. And I'll just read a paragraph I wrote in the article and then sort of throw back to you and get your take on it. So I wrote, the first two are fair enough, but the latter two are ridiculous. Not being able to drink in view of the pitch is not just highly restrictive, but also counterproductive. I cannot be the only person who has seen lads furiously getting through pre-match pints on a concourse because they know they can't take them up to the stands. Some double up and the result can be that they're bladdered by the time the game kicks off. Better surely to let them drink while the game is on. Yeah, I feel quite strongly about this, Amanda. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not someone who gets hammered at games and gets bladdered at games, and I don't want to either, but I do like to have a drink at a game. And I do think it's absolutely ridiculous that when you go to football, you're not allowed to take a pint up into the stands and watch the game. Whereas when you go to cricket, which I've done a few times, you can pretty much get absolutely hammered, bladdered, trolleyed, whatever word you want to use, while the cricket is going on. And what's ridiculous about that? There's a lot of people like myself who go to the cricket are also people who go to the football. So why are we treated so differently the cricket as we are to the football? And again, it touches on what you said, that line you gave. There's a parallel system, isn't there, for, for football fans? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes right back to what I was saying earlier about all the legislation to deal with the English disease that was rushed through with no scrutiny or no real thought on how it would impact supporters. And and again, um, when I first started doing this, we used to get a huge number of people arrested for alcohol-related offences. Thankfully, we don't see hardly any now, and there is more discretion shown. But again, I would say the very fact that it is a criminal offence highlights the parallel system in how football fans are treated compared to supporters of other sports. And all the time you've got that parallel system, you're marking fans out as different. You're pretty much saying, well, you're a football fan, we're not even going to consider giving you the opportunity to be treated like a cricket fan or a tennis fan or an athletics fan or a rugby fan or a boxing fan because you're a football fan. So if we remove this legislation you're just going to revert to type. And there's there's actually academic evidence to support what you said, um, carried out by Dr. Jeff Pearson, who's an academic who specialises in football-related legislation, human rights, and so on. And he's actually proven that most, if not all, of the restrictions around alcohol cause more problems than they solve for the very reasons you articulated. I don't. Yeah, of course. I, I think it's fair enough. You shouldn't be allowed to enter a football stadium drunk. You know, fair enough. Um, but it and it's be a criminal offence, though, should it? I mean, I. I no, agree. you're right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's uh, and you know when we sort of talk about getting rid of this legislation, there's lots of clutching of pearls, saying, "Oh my God!" But what happens if? What happens if those people lose sight of the fact that a football stadium is private property? They can impose whatever terms. Mm. Of- of entry that they like and a term and condition of entry is already you can't enter a stadium drunk a steward in his own right has the power to bar you from entry if you are drunk why do we then need that legislation Mm. and again it goes back to what i said earlier it doesn't matter that only 10 15 20 people are arrested and charged for that a year that's still that many people that are charged with an offence because it's football related that they wouldn't be charged with were it another sport. No, you're absolutely right. While I think it's you shouldn't 
um, be allowed to enter a football stadium drunk and you shouldn't be able to, allowed to take alcohol into a ground. I absolutely agree with you. Those should not be criminal offences. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. But also, I think there shouldn't, there definitely shouldn't be issues with being able to drink in view of the pitch. As I, as I said in that, you know, as I was reading through what I wrote in the Football 365 article, it's completely counterproductive because, you know, you'll have seen it yourself. I've seen it. You know, there's people on concourses and it, it does tend to be lads. It does tend to be men you know, doubling up on pints, necking pints five, literally five minutes before a game kicks off because they know they can't take that pint up into the stands. Surely better just to let them drink at a far slower rate. It must be better for their health, mental, as well as physical. To just drink slowly as a game's going on, as opposed to, as I said, necking it on the concourse before the game kicks off. And as we've said, the the parallel system issue, the, the parallel criminal justice system issue, you are not allowed to drink in view of the pitch of football, but you're absolutely allowed to drink in view of the pitch at the cricket. You're treated one way at the Oval and one way at Anfield. And it just, you know, it just it just absolutely cannot be right. <laughs> I know, and, and, it, and it's just not logical. I mean, like, I, I think it's it Norwich that have got a hotel overlooking the pitch. And in the rooms that actually overlook the pitch, there are signs in the hotel room saying it's illegal for you to drink in this room. Um, really? I wasn't aware of that. Wow. I'm sure it's Norwich. I, I stand to be corrected if, I, if I'm wrong on that. But equally, you know, hospitality. Hospitality boxes will draw the curtains leading up to kickoff. Because, I mean, what on earth do they think is going to happen? <laughs> a consenting adult drinking their pint or their gin and tonic or whatever in a corporate box. What is going to happen if they carry on drinking, looking at the pitch? You know, there is this argument, oh, well, it's really good to have the legislation there just in case because it's football. And that we do hear quite a lot of people say... I don't want drinking in the in front of the pitch to be allowed because I don't want people up and down every five minutes going to the bar to top up their pints. All of that is really reasonable. But again, a football club is a private business. They can impose whatever strict restrictions mm. they like. Even if the legislation goes, that doesn't mean that a football club has to serve alcohol for spectators to drink in view of the pitch. It can be entirely up to that club any club, whether or not they serve. And it can be done in certain areas of the ground. Like you, you wouldn't have alcohol in a family stand, for example, would you? No, no that's fair enough. Yeah, Apparently. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So th- th- there are some sort of parallels to the whole safe standing debate. You know, people sometimes get the wrong end of the stick and say that we're advocating whole stadiums are turned over to, to standing areas. Well, we've never, ever said that. We've always said... In consultation with supporters, certain areas of every stadium should have standing areas. Mm-hmm. Exactly the same with alcohol could happen. You know, if, if the legislation is removed from the books, every club can make their own decisions whether or not they serve alcohol in consultation with supporters in certain areas of the ground. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's, again, it just goes to this fundamental issue. Treat football fans like adults and they will they will act like adults. What are the figures around football arrests at the moment? Do we know? Obviously, they've massively dropped over the last 12 months with the very fact there are no football match goers and football spectators. But you uh, you said it earlier that there has been a drop. There has been a, a sizable reduction as they're in arrests, football-related arrests. There have been in, in arrests, but police now or, and have had in recent years, they've stopped arresting 
quite so much. And what can happen is um, they can take your name and address and phone number. Supposing you're walking down the street and you're being a bit of a twat and antisocial behaviour, possibly you're committing a an offence under Section 5 of the Public Order Act, which is causing harassment, alarm or distress. So rather than nick you there and then, um, the police can take your details and invite you in for an interview at a later date, or they can just issue you with the court summons without the need to arrest you. So whilst, yes, it's absolutely right that arrests have come down, which is brilliant, there is this other side of it where we people can still be charged via those, you know, via attending a voluntary interview or being summoned to court without being arrested. But even including that, yes, the figures are coming down year on year. And what, what's your level of dialogue like with, with police themselves at national, local level? How often do you speak to maybe senior officers, I guess, or as I said, all those, I don't know, beat officers or those who deal specifically, you know, football match commanders, for instance, how, how regular is that dialogue? At least quarterly. Um, mm. There have been in recent years independent advisory groups set up which comprise football supporters, so representatives of, say, Spirit of Shankly, all the football clubs in London, in Yorkshire, in the West Midlands um, have got independent advisory groups. So fans reps will go along and meet the police three or four times a year to discuss issues arising. And the independent advisory groups, I suppose, are best described as being critical friends to the police. West Midlands police particularly good and probably one of the most progressive police forces in the country. So not only have they completely moved away from a public order style of policing to a far more community-based style of policing. I mean, I remember, for example, as a West Ham fan going to Wolves Way a few years ago, probably about 10 years ago now. And from the very start of the day, all the police were in their riot gear. And it was actually the police that searched people going into the stadiums. And they were the one that so the, you were getting searched by riot police, essentially. Yeah, and that happened as well uh, at Millwall away. You know the footpaths. Up yeah, to Millwall, I know very well. Footpath. Yeah. yeah, searched by the police. Looking Blimey. back, they had no grounds to yeah, so yeah. Why, why they got these special powers to search but anyway operations like that are a thing of the past so, so not only have west mids been incredibly progressive with their style of policing they've also got an independent advisory group but they are one of the police forces that have been really really good at looking at not criminalizing supporters mm -hmm. and finding alternatives to the criminal justice system so they've got a project called the offside project which looks at younger supporters that have actually been through or who are on the cusp of going into the criminal justice system so they run behavioral courses for them over a period of weeks that cover all aspects of behavior joint enterprise drink and drugs diversity antisocial behavior um, which is just absolutely brilliant to see because the default position a few years ago was let's nick and charge as many football fans as possible get them banning orders so we're not seeing that quite so much but yeah West Mids lots of praise due for them you know it's, it's just brilliant that they are that far ahead of the game and whilst other police forces in the country have their own sort of versions of that and their sort of varying degrees of youth intervention work to stop kids you know going down the wrong road there's still no real consistency around the country so the sort of young problem fans in West Midlands 
will probably stand a better chance of not ending up with a criminal record thanks to the West Midlands Police's initiatives compared to a young fan elsewhere. You know, all, all police will say, oh, you know, we, we know how a problem kids are. We'll pull them to one side, we'll talk to them, we'll go and knock on their door, we'll sit them down with mum and dad. And I'm absolutely not knocking all of those initiatives because they will work to varying degrees. But I do find it really interesting that kids, for example, who might be involved in street gangs, knife crime, there are a million and one safety nets for those young kids. But the problem kids at football, not not quite so much. And again, it's just an example of the parallel structures. And an added irony to that, lots of our football clubs, if not all of them, will have community arms or foundations that do really, really good work within their communities. And a lot of Mm. them will work with, you know, young people involved in antisocial behaviour or worse. And a lot of the clubs, I think Arsenal, for example, um, run initiatives alongside prisons. So people released from prisons go into programmes supported by or sponsored by football clubs to help them rehabilitate into society. And there's also a lot of football clubs involved with an initiative that I can't remember the name of, and I'll have to find it and let you have it afterwards. But suffice to say, they work in police stations. So if you're a young kid and you get caught with a knife and you end up in a police station involved in this initiative, immediately there's a whole army of people working with this kid and saying, look, you know, we can work with you. We recognise that you're involved with the wrong people. It might not be your fault. You might be vulnerable. We don't want you involved in knife crime. We don't want you killing people. We don't want you being killed. So football clubs do all this really, really, really good work. But when it comes to their own fans that are problematic, behaving like dickheads, looking at going down the wrong path, the solution of those football clubs with their own supporters is to ban them. So that's another big question I have. You know, if football clubs can do all this amazing, really, really good work within their communities, and rightly so, why then do they take such punitive action with their own supporters? You know, why can't they afford all these benefits and opportunities and help and support to their young fans rather than just saying, dear Johnny, you acted like a dickhead and threw beer around, you abused a steward, you did this, you did that, so therefore you're banned for three years. It's just something that I just find odd, to say the least. No, it's a very good point. And and listening to that, it sounds like there's kind of two things that need to go on here almost. So it's a very holistic, very progressive approach to those football supporters, specifically young football supporters who do who do act up, who are leery at football, who do cause problems and for clubs and I don't know, for social services and, and the police themselves to to take, as I said, a, a kinder, more holistic, broader approach to helping those those people. But also then just fundamentally changing the laws, the criminal laws around football. So would it be as easy as, is it too easy to say just overhaul or completely get rid of the, the Football Offences Act of 1991, for instance? I, I think, yeah, let's see it scrapped, but the chances yeah. of that happening are incredibly remote. You know, the, there is a school of thought that says, OK, we might not use it. We might not use it to prosecute fans or not prosecute as many fans as we used to, which is all laudable. But we still need it as a safety net. You, you won't find any real appetite within the police or politics to remove that legislation. Um, it, it, it just gives them the comfort factor. 
And if anything, the situation might be getting worse because um, of the police crime sentencing, sentencing and courts bill, which is currently working its way through Parliament. Uh, you recently wrote a, a really good piece about this and the, uh, this potential piece of legislation and the serious and damaging impact it could have on football fans. Do you just want to talk about what, what you wrote and the issues around this piece of legislation? Yeah, there's been an awful lot of coverage about the proposed, as you say, and it's a real mouthful, police crime sentencing and courts bill. Yeah, that's um, the one. Yeah, <laughs> easy for us to say. Um, I mean, whoever sat and drafted it, just I, I would love to be inside of their head because in its current form, and I should say it has been examined, there is an opportunity for people to submit evidence to mm. Parliament human rights committee so please god it doesn't go through in its current format but if it does it it effectively criminalizes you if you are being annoying the 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 bill concerns itself with giving the police powers to curtail protest and behavior if for example it causes the public unease or distresses them or annoys them or inconveniences them. I think the origins in this are probably ha- have something to do with the Extinction Rebellion protests yeah. of years ago, because clearly, you know, that they in, in London where I live, I think are you in London as well? I am, yep. Yeah, yeah South so, East so, London. So we both would have seen the bridges being closed and everything yeah. else. So I, I think that that's probably the roots of the bill. There there are individual um, protesters that I think sort of like march up and down and bang saucepans outside mm. parliament and government buildings which I can imagine is really bloody annoying but do we really want to criminalise these people? You know the, the, the police have got more than enough powers at their disposal to deal with people they've got dispersal powers for example but whilst everybody was talking about this bill in the in the context of protest and absolutely rightly so well first of all football fans protest so we could be adversely affected by this but also our behavior could very very easily let's face it come under the umbrella of annoying people or inconveniencing people you know like the the group of lads that pile off the train and you know make it very clear that they've arrived in town um yeah it probably does annoy people might even make some people feel uneasy but do we really want to go down the road of criminalizing potentially criminalizing that sort of behaviour, and I would say no, and thankfully a lot of people agree with me. Yeah, it's exactly that. I mean, you wrote in this piece, I think it was for the FSA's own website, uh, explaining how, we'll say it again, it is a real mouthful, police crime sentencing and courts bill, as I said, currently working its way through Parliament. Uh, it is about protest in general, but the, fact, the effect it could have on, on football supporters, and as you say, football fans protest, um, football fans you know, congregate in town town centres and town squares before big games. They you know, they they take over trains uh, as well, and yet sometimes they can be leery and aggressive and and uh, objectionable. But sometimes they're just having a laugh and being perfectly fine. But now they could they, they could end up with a criminal record purely, as you said, for being annoying. Uh, this law allows someone to complain and say that football sport is annoying me. And under this potential legislation, that could lead to them getting uh, criminalised. I mean, it's just absolutely astonishing. Yeah, where are we with this then? As you said, it, it, it is working its way through. It hasn't, it's not in the law books at the moment. Do you, do you feel instinctively that it will get either redrafted or, or completely stopped in its tracks? 
I don't think it'll be stopped in its tracks because, mm. as I said in the blog that I wrote, you know, e even before this legislation was mooted, a couple of cases, um, Greater Manchester Police, for example, back at the back end of 2018, you, you know, the habit of European away fans are congregating in Manchester Town Centre and yeah. walking to the stadiums. Yeah, you know, it's a pain in the ass for people in Manchester because the roads are blocked and they can't get their buses and they can't get their trams. But relying on that, you know, the inconvenience to the wider travelling public, Greater Manchester Police were very keen for these walks to stop. But what they missed was the fact that they're actually covered by human rights of association and expression. So their human rights to do that really needed to be weighed up against the inconvenience that it caused the people of Manchester. And, you, you, you know, that there's absolutely no point in whatsoever in shying away from the fact that, yeah, it's a massive inconvenience that roads are closed and people can't get their trams or their buses. But it, it, it's subjective, and I think there is a strong argument to say that it being inconvenienced is very much part and parcel of city life. If these marches were happening, say, through quaint picture box villages like the Cotswolds or the Lake District or somewhere, I think, yeah, there'd probably be a much stronger argument to potentially say that we really need to look at this because it's causing mass disruption to the communities. But cities have got a very different vibe and dynamic be fair to the police, their manpower has been cut drastically in recent years. Have, the, have they got the manpower to manage these, these marches, processions, walk en masse and still answer all the 999 calls? They probably haven't. But you don't tackle that problem by criminalising... The marches. The marches. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, exactly. You tackle the problem by giving the police more money so they yeah, can yeah. get police officers out on the street to do all of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And just going back to the point you made about city life, I think that's absolutely the case. I think if you live in Manchester, you are 98 percent of people who live in Manchester are probably fine or certainly accept the fact that on match days when Manchester United are playing or Man City are playing, their lives are going to be slightly inconvenienced by fans traveling around the city. If there's a big European game, there's going to be fans from another country, you know, taking over the city, taking over the town centre, the city centre. Um, but as long as there's no trouble around that and it's just, you know, happy singing and the fans walking to the ground, I think most people are fine with that. And the issue now with this uh, with this bill is it could it could now just take one person to say to the police, I was really annoyed with those fans standing outside those shops in Manchester City Centre what before they uh, headed off to Old Trafford or the Etihad. Or I'm annoyed with them walking to the ground and singing their songs. You know, they're perfectly fine songs related to their club and then that could lead to you know as i said draconian criminalization which i think is absolutely ridiculous so yeah let's hope let's hope this bill is watered down at least let's hope so as well not not least because you know going right back to the start of our chat talked about the stoke city fans in the yeah. section 27 that was the you know football fans can be guinea pig guinea pigs mm. Absolutely. Or, you know, so they were guinea pigs for the dispersal powers with the football banning orders, their parallels to ASBOs. And I think protesters are protected by their human rights in a way that football fans, I mean, that we have protection of sorts, but I think protesters will get far more sympathy than a load of Paris Saint-Germain fans marching yeah. through Manchester or Sunderland fans taking over Trafalgar Square. So I think, you know, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there aren't drastic changes that, that football supporters will be targets for this legislation. And with all, you know, this going back again to the Section 27, case law came out of 
the case against GMP, which tailored how Section 27 was used in the future. And I think exactly the same with this new bill. I mean, I'm not suggesting cynically that, oh, let's try it out on football fans. But I am suggesting there's a natural progression to try it out on football fans. Well, we'll see how it develops. Definitely one to keep an eye on. Um, Amanda, you've been absolutely brilliant. And we're getting very close to your hair appointment, which I know is really, really important to you. So I'm not going to keep you for much longer. So just a couple more things. First of all, I think really important. And if, certainly if you're happy to do this as well, do you just want to give listeners your contact details in terms of if they need to get in touch with your email addresses, phone numbers, Twitter handle, those things? Sure. Thank you. Um, my email address is amanda.jacks at the F for football, S for supporters, A for organisation. No, A for association. Sorry. <laughs> You're getting confused as well. I'm getting confused as well. Um, actually, let me give you my Twitter address because my contact details are on my Twitter page and they are I don't um, at fair cop underscore so that's my twitter address and my phone number is 07703 519 five. and finally my email is amanda.jacks at the f for football s for supporters a for association dot org uk and the football supporters association website is also the fsa dot fantastic we got there in the end i'll i'll also put that all in the uh, the description notes for this for this episode as well um final question amanda so normally the final question of this podcast is if you could go back in time and alter one aspect of your time supporting the club you support what would you alter i'm not going to ask you that question obviously because we haven't spoken about uh, your experiences as a football fan so i'm going to ask you a very tailored specific question it might be a very difficult question to answer so if it is please adjust it to make it work for you but the final question i want to ask you is if you had the power to change one aspect of the way in which football fans are treated by police and stewards in this country what would you choose that football fans were more vociferous in speaking up against their treatment Excellent. Lovely answer. And yeah, I agree with that. As I said, it goes back to that accept and uh, accept, say that again, expect and accept mentality that a lot of football fans have that, that you that, that you coined. And I absolutely agree with, I think as football fans, all of us, we have to be far more vocal when we're treated, treated unfairly and treated badly at grounds. And you're doing a fantastic yeah, job at representing us. Yeah, because I, I can't stress enough, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure some people think that I'm that bloody woman banging <laughs> And, you know, where's the evidence to support everything that she says? Um, you know, I, I, we've all been there, haven't we? we? We've all been out for, say, a meal on a Saturday night. It was appalling. We've gone home. We've gone on Twitter. We said, I just had the most awful meal. I'm going to write and complain on Monday morning. Monday morning comes and we can't be bothered. Or the police are a bit rude to us or push us over or whatever. And we think, oh, I'm going to complain. And then Monday morning comes. Oh, what's the point? It won't get us anywhere. I completely understand it. I've been there myself on several occasions, but I can't stress enough, you know, that the more, A, for your own personal satisfaction, and I will support you through the complaints process, and I've got um, solicitors on hand that can also help with that. You know, that's for the top end, more serious matters. But for the day-to-day stuff, you know, the more mundane stuff, it absolutely is worth getting in touch because it makes my job far easier if I can say to people, Look, you know, these experiences aren't anecdotal. I've got 500 emails here from people that say your stewarding is really shit. 
Or the positive side, I can say I've got 500 emails from people that say the stewarding at such and such a club is amazing. Wouldn't you like to be as good as them? So, yeah, I, I could waffle on, but please do get in touch with your experiences, good and bad, because it really does help. Yeah, I echo that. Get in touch with Amanda. She's doing a brilliant job and a very, very important job as well. Uh, Amanda Jacks, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sachin. Very honoured to have been on. I'm in good company with some of your other guests.